Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Ariane Halou, a scholar whose research focuses on drama, music, and poetry in early modern Europe, and artist and choreographer Kitty McNamee, discuss choreography and communication in the music, libretto, and visuals of Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Hi, Kitty. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have this conversation today about not only Bach's St. Matthew Passion as a musical composition, but also about this dance performance that it is a larger part of with John Neumeyer's choreography. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, to ask a bit about your experience as a choreographer, um, having choreographed ballet segments for operas. What is that process like as opposed to doing a complete work like this, where you are choreographing a longer work of music? And also, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that arise when you're working with live musicians, vocalists and instrumentalists on stage or near the stage where the dancers are? I first have to say that I feel I'm incredibly lucky because I've gotten to work with the LA Opera over many years and also work with the LA Philharmonic. So I'm one of the lucky, lucky few in LA that actually gets to work with live musicians. I find that in my concert work, almost entirely the work has been to recording. So working with live musicians, singers, an orchestra is just a gift. I find that there's a huge difference in working on smaller segments within an opera. So you're sort of, you know, staging as in Traviata, like a certain scene within a larger work. And you have a limited amount of music and time that you're responsible for. It's so vastly different than creating what Neumeyer has done with St. Matthew's Passion, which is a long extended piece over four hours, which is incredible, of one overarching story or one overarching event and a lot of players, a vast emotional range that he's got to cover. I think the task is extremely different and the skill set is very different. And I think both are really exciting and valid as a choreographer, but they require you to think very differently. I think one of the things that's so exciting about a piece like this is that you have so many different layers of performance. Within the St. Matthew Passion itself, we have a libretto which has multiple layers of text, each with its own level of meaning. So the libretto includes some of the text from the Gospel of St. Matthew, hence the name of the piece, as well as some chorales or hymns that would have been familiar to Bach's audience back in the 18th century, as well as some original poetry that was written specifically for this Passion Oratorio. And then to layer on top of that, the choreography introduces a really interesting interplay potentially between movement and text. So my next question for you is in a piece like this, where you have a libretto, you have a a lyrical text as well as a musical one. What do you see as the relationship of dance to language does in this context, in a piece like this, does dance or gesture or movement 
replace language or is dance meant to sort of supplement or complement the text as a form of interpretation? And for you as a choreographer, ideally, if you're working with a piece like this, what is your goal? How would you approach trying to establish a relationship or a balance between the libretto and the choreography? Something jumps to mind, something that I read that uh, Mr. Neumeyer had said, choreography is in essence his language. So I feel the same way. Movement is my language. That's the primary way that I communicate. So I think what's interesting about his work and this work in particular is that it's very integrated. It's all a complete picture. He, he also did the costume design, the set design. He directed, he choreographed. So he's really in charge as a choreographer of the entire complete picture. And I think a goal of his was to make it a complete work so that nothing outshone the other, everything supported, each element supported all of the other elements. So it came together as a whole. I completely agree with him. And I feel that movement is my language. And I think it's a way to possibly jump over some hurdles, like spoken or written language hurdles or cultural hurdles, trying to make something Baroque accessible to a modern audience, I think is a real challenge. And I think to my, my mind, dance is the perfect way to do that because you're jumping immediately to the human, the emotional, the sort of the visceral response that everybody would have to the music and to the text, whether they speak German or not. I think dance is a way to sort of jump over those hurdles. Um, as far as me working with spoken or written text, I've also worked a lot in the theater and have worked with spoken text. Personally, I kind of prefer spoken text to sung text, but you know, that's just my preference. And I also find that it offers a different challenge because you're tasked with the question, am I illustrating the language? Am I illustrating the text or am I interpreting it or am I, or am I responding to it emotionally? I think that's what's happening in the St. Matthew is, is an emotional and visceral response to the story, not necessarily re-en- a reenactment. I find that really fascinating. I think that's a very uh, sophisticated response to the material. Yeah, that's great. I really love this idea of dance as something that can close the gap between the audience and the artwork because you're you're right it's such an emotionally rich and dramatically rich work of art and we come at it as a work of art, right? We're we're buying tickets to go see a show. We're going to see it in the beautiful Dorothy Chandler Pavilion um, on this glorious stage with all of these amazing artists. It's so different from the context in which it would have been performed in Box Day when it was really part of a liturgical celebration. This was part of the church service on Good Friday in 1727 uh, when it was first performed. But one of the things, this sort of emotional intensity, it's one of the reasons why we love the piece so much today and why it continues to resonate. But it's also one of the keystones of its purpose, this idea of finding something that for Bach's audience, um, so for the for the Lutheran church in Leipzig, where it was performed, that would have been important to sort of reflect on the one's personal connection to the passion story which is not necessarily a connection that every audience member today is going to feel personally, whether because of a different 
cultural background or religious background or, you know, a, a different perspective. But that sort of point of emotional connection, it's interesting to think of dance as the medium that can make that more possible. One of the things that's really interesting about the libretto and that can seem kind of surprising to modern audiences is the fact that so many of the arias and some of the chorales as well are in the first person. So this intermediary text the, in the libretto written by Picander, so many of these, these moments are sort of declarations of intense emotion from the perspective of someone who is reacting to the story as it happens. So it's a way of really inviting the audience to kind of in box day, not the audience, but the congregation to feel along with the story. And there's something about seeing a body in motion, right? Music does this for us as well, but something about the the embodied gesture and sort of being able to kind of, as we're watching, imagine the feeling of that gesture for ourselves combined with the sound that is sort of an invitation to, for us also to kind of feel along with the emotional arcs of the narrative. Could you speak a little bit more about the context in which this piece would have been seen at that time? I mean, it's so different from the kind of concert hall or opera house context in which we see it today. It also wouldn't have been seen as as frequently. It, it premiered in 1727 and was likely revived a couple of times during Bach's tenure as the Thomas Cantor or the, the Cantor of St. Thomas Church in uh, in Leipzig, where he was responsible for overseeing the music, not just of St. Thomas's church, but of, of the four sort of principal Lutheran churches in Leipzig. And he wrote uh, as well the St. John Passion, which was performed a few years earlier, and other passions um, that he almost certainly wrote, but which have not survived or have survived only in part. For the people who would have seen this in real time then, you know, when it was when it first appeared, it wasn't just going to see the piece of music. It was going to church for Good Friday, which is one of the most or if not the most solemn day on the Christian liturgical calendar. Um, which commemorates the crucifixion of Christ, which is the story of, of the Passion. It was traditional to do readings from one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels of the New Testament, recounting the Passion story. And it's a tradition that, that goes way, way back. And in the Middle Ages, there started to be a tradition of people intoning or reciting or singing these texts. Um, so that sort of originated this tradition of of performance of the passion leading, for example, in the Catholic tradition to passion plays and other kinds of liturgical dramas. And even in the Protestant traditions, some forms of liturgical drama, and in some cases, as in Bach's Lutheran church in the early 18th century, where that sort of like overtly performative or overtly theatrical mode would not really have been appropriate. The music could still create a sense of drama. But that's something that was also a bit risky. The compositional techniques that Bach is drawing on, the structure of a recitative and aria, when we hear that now, we think, oh, sure, that's Baroque opera and or oratorio. For an audience in Leipzig in the 1720s, that would have been strictly from the world of opera. And some people in that congregation might have been a little bit perplexed or surprised or suspicious about finding that in their finding that kind of music in their Good Friday service. Also, because the music was so closely wedded to its liturgical context, after the sort of style of having, you know, for example, these verse reflections interspersed with the with the text, the way that Picander structured the libretto, that kind of fell out of favor after Bach's lifetime. 
And the St. Matthew Passion wasn't performed again until the beginning of the 19th century when Felix Mendelssohn gave a concert, conducted a concert version, and that sort of kicked off this revival of interest in, in Bach's work. And so since 1829, it has almost never been out of the repertoire, but there was a gap of almost a century where people were just not, not paying attention to this music. So part of it is the religious context. It would have been a much smaller ensemble than we see today. So uh, if you go see this in LA, at LA Opera, you're going to see a large chorus, a full orchestra, as well as a full, the whole Hamburg Ballet Corps. But in Bach's day, it would have been much smaller. It, this is orchestrated for a double choir and double orchestra, but even a, a double choir would have been a fairly small cohort of musicians between maybe 12 and 24 singers. So not a huge choir. Sometimes you go see this and there's, you know, 80 singers performing it. And that can be a really rich and magnificent um, experience, but it's very different from how Bach's listeners would have experienced it. And then finally, the other part of it, which I think is so hard for us as modern people to, to wrap our heads around is the fact that hearing any kind of live music, we have access to music through various technologies constantly. We can always have music in our ears if we want to. That's not the case for people who lived before the advent of, you know, of recording to audio recording technology. But on top of that, during the season of Lent leading up to Easter, in that period, the church imposed a sort of moratorium on various kinds of entertainments, including orchestrated music. So the congregation going to hear this Good Friday service where they would have had, you know, the whole day of prayers and rituals and contemplations and the sermon would have been preached in between parts one and part two. So as you said, the, the whole musical piece is about three hours long. So add several hours of other functions to that. And you have, you know, pretty much your, your whole day spent with this musical performance as just a part of it. But those audiences their ears would have been a little bit starved for this kind of richness of sound over the preceding couple of months. So it would have been kind of an overwhelming experience in that sense too, which I think leads, you know, maybe augment some of the emotional intensity about it, right? It would Imagine, have been truly awesome. Yeah, yeah. In the old fashioned sense of the word awesome. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It made me think for many of us who are lovers of the arts and who work in the arts, during the sort of, you know, the long stretch of the early pandemic shutdown when we couldn't have access to anything. I mean, luckily a lot of that is starting to come back now, but uh, I mean, I vividly remember being in a room with live musicians for the first time after about eight months and it all, it, you know, almost brought me to tears. It was so <laughs> overwhelming to have that experience. And, you know, this is as someone who has access to recorded music and, and can, you know, can listen to whatever I want, whenever I want, but it's so different from being in real time in physical proximity with other musicians. I also think about the way dance was viewed at that time. If there was any dance to be viewed, you know, it would not have been accepted in a church setting or any kind of religious setting. And also I think like for a contemporary audience who have different religious convictions, movement is like a primary way to sort of access the music itself, separate from the libretto, just the music, having a physical representation, a physical engagement with it, I think gives someone in real time an ability to sort of track this experience and make sense of 
something that, you know, perhaps back then people did, you know, they had a longer attention span. They were starved for it, as you said. So they would take it in in that moment. And then for us, you know, 30 seconds, TikTok, we're done, right? So to have some kind of physical real-time expression, which was not the intention when it was created, but I think that it, it really adds a layer of inclusivity and a way to maybe draw younger people in who don't have any kind of context for this kind of work. So I, I find that personally very exciting. People are more able to access the world of dance through TikTok, through Instagram, through So You, you Think. People are used to looking at dance now. They're still not, the greater population still not used to listening to classical music or Baroque music. The younger generation may have a much more limited understanding, even ability to to get in to start to understand it. There's something about the way dance has grown in the culture from Baroque time to now that like in the last, it's like technology in the last five years, it has exploded. And then you have this classic work from 80, this work was made in 81. So it is a classic. I'm just really excited about the fact that I read that most of the choreography is exactly the same as it was. There are improv improvisational sections that the individual dancers have the freedom to express themselves. And with the context of the choreography that is set, I read that Dance Magazine said that, this is a quote, one comes to feel that this is a community of people who have decided to enact the passion as in a medieval mystery play. Each dancer expresses grief, doubt, questioning or aggression so personally that each seems to have chosen his or her own role. I just think that's astounding. The fact that this work, I'm speaking about the choreography, continues to be performed is very exciting to me because it is, it is even though it's based on something Baroque, it's very contemporary and it remains to be contemporary. It's not in the tradition of a Nutcracker or a Sleeping Beauty which is like a fairy tale. This is a contemporary expression of a Baroque idea and even a biblical idea, even older. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I love that description of the first person intensity of those, of the dancers' performances, because I think that's such a beautiful echo of, of the first person narrative that's in the libretto, right? So exactly. it's a way that, that Neumeyer was consciously kind of drawing on that, the intensive personalization of the story and translating what's in the libretto, what's in the music into choreography. This piece, as you said, premiered in 1981. So it's a little over 40 years old. It has the status of a classic. It is exciting that it's still touring the world and being seen, but there's still something, but it is still very, very modern in its form. It, there's, there is, um, it's not trying to like recreate Baroque dance, for example. And it's so interesting that just as in, you know, in the past 30 or 40 years, there has been at the same, uh, in the world of Baroque music and early music, a move toward historically informed performance practice using period instruments, things like that, right? And having a sort of a consciousness of how would it have sounded? What would these instruments have been? What kind of tuning are we using? And at the same time, so that's something that's sort of almost looking, it, it, I, I don't want to say looking backward historically, because I think it's all, it is kind of forward thinking and an idea in a sense of trying to kind of recapture something 
or or explore it. I had when I studied early music performance as an undergraduate, um, my professor used to say that the, our performance ensemble was a laboratory course in experimental early music, which or experimental musicology, which I thought was a was a great way of describing it. You know, this idea of, of us as sort of like musical archaeologists trying to to dig around with these instruments and see what we what we could discover. But at the same time, there has been this idea of pairing music that's tied to a very specific historical moment with modern dance. So as you said, you know, not like Sleeping Beauty or Nutcracker where there's, you know, the choreography and the music might be fixed at a similar historical point. Although of course there have been newer choreographies of those pieces too, but where we have something very modern connected with, with something Baroque. I wonder if you, if you want to say something about other types of performances that take that approach or sort of where the, where the meeting point of the Baroque and modern is. I know that as we were preparing for this conversation, we talked a little bit about the collaborations between the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra and the Mark Morris Dance Company. So it's another pairing of early music and modern dance. Um, I wonder if you might say something about that as an artistic pairing. Well, I can speak to something that I find very interesting in moving the craft of ballet. I'm not a ballet expert. My background is more contemporary dance, but I I love ballet and have a great appreciation for it. But there was something I think, you know, the further we go and forward in time and you're coming out of like world wars and plagues <laughs> to continually go back to fairy tale and stay in that mold structurally, which is a very kind of patriarchal mold, <laughs> you know, the man, the woman, this, that, you know, this, you know, you know, we're, we're in the middle of an upheaval. So continuing to tell those fairy tales, like a Disney princess kind of mindset without re-examining and reflecting where we are right now, I think is kind of a pitfall. And I think that the ballet that was created for St. Matthew is still modern because the examination of it was not a fairy tale. It wasn't old fashioned. It was, it was looking at the present and moving forward. And I think that's critical. Whatever musical, you know, whatever, if you're Baroque, you know, whatever musical world you're living in, if you have humans on stage, if you can not ignore the present, I think it's going to be much more impactful. It's very energizing to me that this piece still feels still incredibly moving, impactful, clear, precise, and human. And I think that that approach and that level of detail and the courage to sort of look at where we are now, if that was 1981, or if that is 2022, that's what moves everything forward. I, yeah, I think there's something so interesting about the idea of, of the fairy tale or, or any other kind of sort of archetypal narrative, whether it's out of Greek mythology or out of the Bible, there's something about these very, very old stories that we keep coming back to. And I agree with you that sort of letting the stories be static and not trying to reconsider them is less exciting, but there is something potentially really exciting and interesting about being able to re-examine those stories and myths and fables and foundational narratives in the context of our own time, where we can sort of put our own meaning onto them. Um, well, whether... archetypes are real. A big proponent of 
understanding psychology within movement. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear more, more about that. How do you see the archetype as, as functioning in dance? Well, I, th- I think that's what people respond to, you know, regardless of the format or the framework of it. I think the archetypal system is sort of built into our psyche and you respond to it on a level that's not intellectual. So I think it's just a matter of how we respond now that I find is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in this interpretation, you know, the, the people are the same care, the same dancers may be incredibly aggressive or they, be, they may be humble. They may be brought to tears. They may be, they, they may be the aggressors. They may be the victims you know, we're flipping it back and forth because they're kind of reflecting the human condition to get really deep. So that is going to carry any work around the world, which obviously it has carried this work around the world. And I think that that archetypal aspect is enduring. It's just when you get into sort of the fairy tale-ish that I think it can feel dated, but I think that's something that movement dance language is really exceptional at expressing is, you know, things that can't be expressed with words. You can't really even describe a dance with words. I don't think because it's, it's deeper than words. It's deeper. It's a deeper language. Yeah. And then if you put, if you put something like box music with this choreography, then you have a double experience of hearing and seeing something at the same time it's going to impact you on many levels that's what i think is so exciting about a work like this and i think that la is incredibly lucky that there's an opportunity to experience a work like this two masters operating side by side so you have the visual the sonic everything operating together at this highest level it's just a gift yeah, absolutely. We're so fortunate to have this production coming to LA and I'm I'm really really excited to see it. I want to reflect back on on one point you made about the dancers being able to take on so many different emotions in the performance that they, you know, maybe maybe guilt at one moment, maybe grief at another moment, maybe, you know, confusion. Uh because that's another way in which the structure of the oratorio and the choreography intersect in an interesting way. So the way that the the oratorio is structured is pretty typical for a passion oratorio, but is perhaps um, not something that we're used to seeing in in secular oratorios or in, if you think of other oratorios of this period, like some of Handel's mythological ones, you know, like Asus and Galatea or Semele or one of the other sort of oratorios that are based on narrative from, from Greek mythology, for example, where you have um, named characters, right, in the narrative who, who each sing a different role. And in, in St. Matthew's Passion, there are two named soloists there's the evangelist which is the the voice of the gospel so this is the the singer it's a tenor who reads who sings and recites the text of the gospel of matthew itself and then there's jesus who is a bass and then there are uh four additional soloists soprano alto tenor bass who are not named and they play multiple characters and the chorus as well, the, the two choruses take on different voices and different personas. So there's something 
really, you know, again, this, this idea of personalizing the narrative for the, for both the musicians and the audience and also the dancers in this case, where each one gets to take on multiple roles, gets to kind of see the story from multiple perspectives and gets to go through so many different, you know, so many different kinds of, of emotions and responses over the course of the performance is really, I think, one of the things that, that makes it so rich and so enduring. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's like a great actor who can express the dark and the light. Or, you know, every person has that shadow side that maybe you don't want to reveal to the rest of the world. I certainly do. This is like an amazing opportunity for the dancers to explore that and then for the audience to explore that. And I think it can be quite healing. And I think that the power of the music, I can't even imagine being in a church and hearing this no electric light or candles, you know, incense burning. It was like a mystical experience, like the power and the awe that this music must have inspired. And I think that now, like you said earlier, we're so used to having music at our fingertips. We can listen to things at any time, just put in our earbuds. There we go. But Getting to experience live music again after the pandemic is exceptional. And then you're adding onto it that layer of a visual performance. And I'm sure that people everywhere all over the world right now have a lot of pent up anxiety and aggression and probably the experience of for the dancers themselves is probably very healing. You know, they're getting to go through all sides of their own humanity and then for the audience to witness it and be able to sort of take that journey with them could be very healing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a sort of, there's still a a collective grief around the pandemic that has not really been reckoned with. And And anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, because it's still not over, (laughs) right? As of, uh, as of this recording, we're approaching two years since things first locked down, that's just a few weeks away. There's a lot to be said for the kinds of um, aesthetic experiences that can that can create that sort of emotional release for us collectively, because I think there is absolutely a need for that. I was trying to think too about that otherness or othering that happens so much now. And if these the chorus or and the dancers are switching sides, they're playing all the roles, you know, they're switching from being the mob to being disciples. That must be really fascinating to experience and to also to as, as a performer, but also as an audience. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't wait either. I mean, it's, it's interesting to, to talk about it with a sense of anticipation because we haven't gotten to see the full production of the choreography yet. And there's something, there's something really exciting too, about a a familiar piece of music being made new with this new dimension. So, I mean, you know, many of us have seen the St. Matthew Passion in concerts or heard recordings of it, but I've never seen it with dance and I've never seen any kind of um, staged version. So I'm very excited for that and, and what it will reveal to the ears and the eyes I think it'll be a different experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see this production. Something that, that I was reading was that Neumeyer was saying that dance is not there to submit, to give us information like a newspaper. It is there to speak 
of other levels. And I think music is the same. Yeah, that it's a form of not necessarily just communicating information, but communicating other kinds of emotional understanding. Speaking to other levels. Exactly. Speaking to other levels. It's a great way to phrase it. You know, it's it's sort of like your earlier point that, that dance is not something that can really be described in words and can also communicate better and differently than words alone can. I think music fills a very similar function Uh, to try to describe music in words. Well, it's kind of what musicologists do. You know, it's a purely intellectual exercise compared to the experience of listening. And there's always something that's lost in translation when you try to do that, when you try to reduce to language something that is really kind of unutterable, right? The way that, that music can, can almost render an emotion or an idea into a sound or a series of sounds, just as dance renders an emotion, an idea, an archetype, a state of being into gesture or movement. We don't need language necessarily to communicate what we want to communicate in those moments. I agree with Neumeier's assessment (laughs) that that dance speaks to other levels. And I would say music does the same thing as well. And it's, it, it is hard to, to put that into simple conversational soundbite <laughs> to explain how that works. But I think it's something that many of us understand instinctively if we've experienced it, you know, if we've ever been moved by a piece of music or a piece of dance, we know that sensation of having a, an emotional reaction that we can't quite put into words and We maybe can't explain how we got there, but we feel it nonetheless. So there's spoken text and sung text. That's a great question. All of the text in the St. Matthew Passion is sung, but it's sung in a couple of different ways. So one of the things I mentioned earlier was the structure of the recitative and the aria. So the recitative, which is almost like a recitation, it Mm -hmm. has that it comes from that word, but it is something that is more musical than that. It really is sung, it is set to a musical accompaniment, but it has the sense of being a little bit speech-like in its rhythms. There's usually a sort of freedom to the pacing of it that makes it sound a little bit like naturalistic speech. It's very, very expressive, but it is definitely music as opposed to plain spoken text. And then usually the recitative leads into an aria, which is you know a word we are familiar with from opera, of course, which is the more sort of elaborated melodic expression. You can think maybe the the simplistic way to put it might be, you know, fewer words, more notes. (laughs) So there are sort of demarcations of text that is more speech-like and less speech-like, but all of it is sung in the oratorio. Although again, in the experience of Bach's original listeners, they would have listened to all of this music, but there would have been speaking in other events of the day, right? There would have been a sermon in between um, the two parts of the oratorio, there would have been prayers and other liturgical readings over the course of the service. So it wasn't just music that they were going to hear. But for us in a, in a modern audience, we are kind of extracting the musical portion um, and leaving the rest of the context aside. Yes, because I was curious about that because you had stated earlier that there was a sermon or some spoken text, but that's not when what we will be seeing. It's what correct. Right. Yeah. It's not at all in what we'll be seeing. It, it would have been what, what the audience in Leipzig in the 1720s would have experienced. It's not going to be our experience. 
our experience will be danced and sung and music mm-hmm. through. Yeah. It, I mean, our experience will be very much like any other concert or opera in the sense that, you know, you show up, there's an intermission, <laughs> you know, uh, we'll and have, this is not an opera, right? <laughs> this is not an opera. No, it's an oratorio. Uh, in fact, Bach, uh, didn't write any operas. And this is something that's, that's fascinating for one of the most prolific composers and genius composers of the Baroque period. Opera wasn't quite in his, in the venue where he was working. There wasn't an opera house in Leipzig when he got there in the 1720s. So he didn't have that opportunity immediately available to him. And again, the context in which he was working, which was mostly, he wrote mostly sacred music. He did write some secular music, some secular cantatas, which are almost opera-like in their structure. My favorite is the coffee cantata because I love coffee and also because it's a beautiful piece of music. There's a soprano aria about how wonderful coffee is. I think it's one of the greatest things ever written. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's fabulous. But that's as close as Bach ever got to to writing an opera would have been those, those secular cantatas. That said though, as I said earlier, the oratorio borrows a lot of its musical structures from the world of opera. So it is richly dramatic. And this is one of the reasons why it lends itself to being staged because it has that sort of dramaturgical support under it. And he writes with the same kind of dramatic attention that an opera composer would be using. So they, they sort of borrow some of the formal or expressive devices, but, and they still have some dramaturgy. There's still some story. Yeah, there's absolutely a story because, well, there is the story of the passion, which is the central narrative, which is, Mm -hmm. which is itself um, an intensely dramatic story structure. Um, And then in addition to that, Picander's poetry and reflections. And then on top of that, some of the choral sections of the oratorio were using melodies from Lutheran hymns that the congregation would have been very familiar with. And so Bach kind of uses that melody and creates something new out of it. And so that's another sort of point of entry for the audience uh, originally, where they they would have had this intimate familiarity with the music that our modern audiences don't necessarily, but those of us who have had the opportunity to hear this music will, you know, maybe get to become familiar with it on our own. I'm wondering if Neumeyer incorporated some classical elements that would be familiar to audiences that he would then sort of, you know, distill or work in some way, working with more pedestrian movement or gestural movement in the same way that Bach used hymns. I'm really curious. I'm going to, I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah, I would too. I think that's, uh, I think it would be really interesting to see if he uses some of those sort of classical ballet gestures in this modern piece. And I think that's something that we will hopefully get to see when we see the production. So maybe that'll be something for our audiences to look out for as well. Well, thank you so much, Kitty. It's been so great talking with you and hearing your insights on this piece. And I look forward to continuing the conversation and also to sharing this beautiful work with LA Opera's audiences. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see it. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. (laughs) 